Please turn with me in the scriptures to 1 Timothy uh, chapter 2. We're continuing in our series uh, in the pastoral epistles, as they are called, uh, where the shepherd, Apostle Paul, is writing to assist in the equipping of the local body of Christ in Ephesus uh, through his, his, uh, the one who he was mentoring, uh, Timothy. And this is similar to what will come up to in Second uh, Timothy and also similar to what will, will come up to in uh, Titus with respect to the local church in Crete. Uh, in, in the epistle, Paul refers several times to you. In the epistles, he refers several times to you as being plural. So he's referring to not just Timothy, and not just the local church, but also churches in general. So all that is being said here has uh, relevance to us, and we'll try and dig that out as we proceed. Uh, in the beginning of the chapter, we studied with Mark last week. Uh, the theme uh, for this, mer- this morning emerged, in my mind at least, and it raises the question, God, one of the verses talked about pleasing God, and I would like to just use that as the theme that draws our thoughts together this morning, Uh, to apply to our own lives and our own local church, God's people please God when? When is it, under what circumstances, what attitude of heart and thought pleases God in our lives, both individually and and corporately? So please write that question down in your notebooks if you have one, at least in your mind if you don't. And as we go through, just kind of highlight things that maybe I've missed in the learnings that you have regarding how we are to uh, be approved of God in the way that we think, in the way that we live, and the way that we have relationships with one another. The first slide uh, summarizes a little bit of what we've learned so far, and I'm going to start with uh, overlapping with some of the previous speakers. Uh, The first thing that I learned, I should say, some teaching false doctrines are dealt with. That was Paul's a plea to Timothy to deal with those uh, that are teaching false doctrines, even within the context of the local church. And David Hook reminded us that we are to uh, be with this goal. Uh, the real, the real purpose we have is 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 to do these things in love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience uh, before God, uh, with a, a sincere faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Our our, our maker, and as we learned, our, our, our savior and our mediator between uh, man and God. The second thing uh, to highlight from previous ones, from chapter 1 and verse 15, uh, Paul started with Timothy with a dissertation about the law and reminded the, the Timothy that the law is used to point us all to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is not there, such that we can earn merit with God by the way we do things, but there to recognize uh, before it that we cannot please God and we, we need his grace and his mercy uh, through faith. Uh, chapter 1, verse 15. Now we're going to just depart from our little overheads for a moment, or little uh, outline for a moment, and just interject a few things important to uh, getting to our text this morning. First thing, one of the things that Mark mentioned last week is uh, 
that the first part of this letter was written to men and women. And one of the challenges Bible interpreters have is to uh, determine whether he is speaking to men as in as males and males as husbands or just males. Or whether we're talking about women being included in that expression of men uh, or uh, even as women, are they being addressed as uh, females or as wives? These Greek words that are used in scripture need some very careful, uh, careful care, careful work in, in determining how that particular word is used in the particular context. So I just wanted to highlight a little bit of uh, what this leads to in our chapter. I, I'm saying in general that first Tim, the first part of Timothy are the, is the general statements to men and women. And in those statements are, uh, are enunciated the principles that Paul is using, the, the doctrines that he is using uh, to, uh, as he follows up in future chapters. In this particular uh, 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 listing of the scriptures of one to six, I won't belabor this, but I want you to see that the word men here is the word anthropos. And that's supporting what Mark was saying last week with the original language. Anthropos here is referring to men and women. So the general and the general principles there are for all of us without any distinction or qualification. By the way, these are all my interpretations and uh, I, I, I stand by them, but uh, I'm not enforcing these. I'm just teaching from from that particular view that this is the way. I have been interpreting this scripture. Now, the problem of, of differentiation is that men, anthropos, doesn't always mean men and women. Sometimes, by its context, may, may refer only to men. And there are examples of that, and I won't bore you with the details. But in this particular chapter, just to highlight that men, is, is, uh, men and women are meant by this anthropos use of word. And, of course, we know this to be true. Who will have all men and women to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. So this is the, what, what God wants of us, is to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And just hold that in your brain for a few minutes. We'll come back to that shortly. I love this part of, uh, of this first part of the chapter. There is one God, one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Between us, men and women, the man who came, Anthropos, for all uh, in, in him. And he gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. So we'll, we'll return to First uh, uh, Timothy 2, two uh, earlier on, a little bit later. But I just wanted to highlight uh, uh, our reading. I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer without anger or disputing. I also want women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be silent. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love and holiness with propriety. 
These, uh, these principles are, are laid out uh, in the first part of the chapter and then used by, uh, by the apostle as he, can, as he continues. He wanted them to be saved, come to a knowledge of the truth, but he had some uh, elaboration of those principles to be made and he wants them to be uh, uh, learned by us all. I just want to give you an overall interpretive structure that I'm following. This is a bit technical, but I just want to run through this to help us uh, think our way through some of these things. And I know this is a difficult chapter. Thanks for the man not leaving or the women not leaving just now. Just bear with me through this uh, through this time of working with these principles. In the beginning, God created male and female. Very soon in the story, we have fallen males and females, and that's the history from that, that time forward in the human race. In the Old Testament, the big picture is God's laws and man's inability to keep the, that, those covenants and those laws. In the New Testament, we come to the Lord Jesus, of course, who is, all, who is here to redeem men and women for himself. The Apostle Paul's work from the Lord given to him was uh, to proclaim the message of God's redeeming of men and women and teaching them to be children of God in the body of Christ that would please him. Uh, in, in elaboration of Paul, I, I could have spent a lot of time on any of these, obviously, but when we look to understand some of these difficult texts, which I think they are, we need to start with the doctrine and principles for all believers. Now, today, I'm not going to be able to give this a total comprehensive view. I'm really focused on understanding this chapter and how it correlates to other chapters in the scriptures that may appear to be the same thing or, or, and are the same things in many cases need to be carefully looked at. The first contact is the intended audience, which is here, Timothy, which is also here, the local church, which was at Ephesus. And uh, we need to look at the immediate context before to make our observations but what, about what God has for us. And therefore, we look to correlate or to compare scriptures, first of all, as primary sources of, of comparison to the book of Acts and its history, particularly with respect to the church at Ephesus, and the letter he wrote to the Ephesians as well, which, gives, which is a very doctrinal book and practical as well, but it's laying out the general principles for that church that he is elaborating on with, with Timothy with respect to that church. Now, when it comes to us apply, figuring out how to apply the teaching and the principles, that we must first of all look, we should look first of all then to their situation and culture to try and uh, fetter out what it meant to the people who were the listeners at that time. And then when we bring this forward to now, we have to be very careful as we draw the selected teachings that Paul was using uh, to the present time and the, the principles that he was using at the, against those, those general teaching, those general doctrines, and how it was working in their culture at the time, and then be very careful how we bring those forward into our culture. Now, by the way, I, I, this is a guard, safeguard for us all is let's not just leap to that culture and transport it here because our world is very different in lots of ways. And we need to be very careful how we go through that. And you can judge whether we've done that correctly this morning as we seek to understand these verses together. 
the city of Ephesus was, uh, I'm just going to introduce a little bit of the uh, background of the culture before we uh, continue our, our working here. Uh, the city of Ephesus is located up uh, just beside uh, uh, the main part of Asia Minor. At the time then, right now it's buried in silt from the river, but back then it was a, a primary port of Rome and accessing the, the uh, culture uh, for this whole region of the New Testament times. And I've just outlined the, uh, the journeys by Paul to Ephesus, uh, and we can read up further on those in the book of Acts and learn about Ephesians from that book as well. Uh, we, Peggy and I had a, uh, what was called the Holy Land tour back in 2015, and we had the privilege of actually visiting the city of Ephesus. And what stood out to us there were a couple things. One was the amphitheater that held at that time about 25,000 people. The population was something like 200,000. I've seen different numbers, but it was a very large, important city of the time. It was kind of a, a gold plate uh, advertisement for the, uh, for the Roman uh, conquest and, and domination over the nations at, at the day. In the uh, city, there's also a, an interesting uh, library there that's uh, partially standing today. And interestingly enough, gives us some clues about the makeup of the church there, including the, the uh, Jews and Gentiles, which we see that clearly in Paul's writings, that both of those cultures were present in that, in that city. Uh, the the uh, amphitheater that was there, and there's lots of public things that Rome built, uh, but up there at the uh, top is the Temple of Artemis Diana, referred to in Scripture was one of the seven ancient wonders of the world and a magnificent building. And this is where the culture comes to bear on our understanding of what Paul was dealing with when he was talking about false teachers in the church and when he was talking about uh, the, the teachings that came and the culture that ar arose around this powerful uh, Diana goddess of their, of their culture. Uh, this is just an aside, but on that trip, I had the privilege of preaching to 25,000 people in, in the amphitheater. And uh, unfortunately, they didn't take the picture earlier when it was full. Uh, the, the moment I started to preach, everybody left, incl in, including most of our tour group. Uh, but there, I had one faithful uh, person there, but she was there making sure that there was no apparent relationship between her and, and me. This gives you the kind of the scope. This is there today. You can see it. It's been excavated out. And it was a huge amphitheater. And the Apostle Paul spoke there as well as in the synagogue. Back to the library for a moment. The Jewish uh, identification in this city is there's no tabernacle. Pardon me. There was no uh, synagogue we can go and visit. But we did. We're able to see on the library a menorah scribed onto the, onto the building with an arrow pointing to where they would gather and they would typically Jewish people would gather probably out near the near the sea down at the port uh, as their normal place of synagogue or one of their places of synagogue synagogues at the time. In, in the uh, in this picture, we were standing here and this is what you would see if you went there today. To the right is a picture of this uh, temple this, that was built to the goddess uh, Diana, also known as Artemis, and her culture is expressed in the uh, 
in things that have been found, and it's a, it's a pretty good replica of what Timothy would be facing when he went to that church. This is a, an, an, the, the idol Diana, and, and I'm just going to skip over this, but they believe that Diana fell from the, fell from the sky, from the lap of Zeus, apparently, and uh, this was the center uh, piece of their worship, of course, layered into the, uh, uh, the Roman go- uh, governors who called themselves gods as well. I just want to summarize what I can with- draw from this culture just to he- maybe help us. And I- I'm just saying that this is my own uh, backdrop to try and understand some of these, some of the difficult verses. They're not all difficult, but some are. Ephesus was a center of paganism governed spiritually by the female deity Artemis, whom the Romans called Diana. The cult of Artemis taught the superiority of the female and advocated female domination of the male. It espoused the doctrine of feminine procreation, teaching that this goddess was able to bring forth offspring without male involvement. The cult was characterized by sexual perversion, fertility rites, endless myths, and elaborate genealogies traced through female rather than male bloodlines. So returning to our, our outline quickly, the, uh, uh, it pleases God in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, that Mark dealt with last week, when we are praying, when we individually are praying, when we are praying together, and we're praying for all without exception. Uh, the second aspect of, in that part of the chapter was that we all are to come to him for salvation. That's what pleases God. That's where the verse came from that I've highlighted here in our overall theme. And, it all, and he also said, we want, God is pleased when we come to him for salvation and are learning his truth. Now, don't immediately transport that to our day-to-day learning about truth. Think about their situation of truth where they had this big, powerful culture up the road in, from the Temple of Diana, and they're living, they're, Paul is teaching in the home churches and the various places mentioned in Scripture, including the synagogue, about the truth that he was expressing, which is the same truth that we have, of course, but was uh, the specific things that he was facing uh, there in Ephesus. So now we come to our uh, part of the chapter uh, uh, where, we, where we just read, and uh, we need to just focus on the men for a moment. And here he, uh, my interpretation is that he's not here talking so much to husbands, although many of them would be husbands here. He is speaking to the men within the context of the local church. That's my Uh, my view of what we're working with here. And he says that he wants men to pray in every place. Uh, He wants men to lead in prayer when they're praying uh, in every place. This may refer to uh, specific aspects of the Jewish faith in particular, where they had very specific places where they were to gather and to pray. And I think Paul is here uh, saying that he, he wants men to pray in every location where they are. It's not just in reserve for a synagogue or a house church uh, or, the, or the streets. It's wherever they are as a gathered church uh, to uh, be praying. And then he goes on with this, uh, this general principle of praying. And I'm going to suggest that this is a correction aspect of the doctrine that's being taught about the whole church praying for everyone everywhere. Here he's addressing the men seeking to correct the way in which they were praying. And the way in which they were praying 
comes from just a clear understanding, I think, of what Paul says to correct them. He says to, uh, for them to pray with holy hands uplifted. Well, uh, we already talked a little bit last week about posture. Is posture important to God? Mark concluded no. And I think the posture that's being addressed really is the posture of our mind and heart as the primary aspect of prayer. It's not so much that we repeat words. It's not so much that we uh, repeat uh, others' uh, uh, pre-written prayers and so on. It's what God, see, what God sees that will please him as the sincerity, genuineness of our heart and mind as we approach him together. Obviously, that, obviously to me, that they may not have been doing that. They were lifting hands up as their posture of prayer practiced then, but they were also not lifting up holy hands. And Paul goes further to specify that they were lifting up hands that were full in the heart and mind of dissension and disagreement and infighting. They were not praying as in a way that pleases God. They were praying with all of the baggage that they were coming with in their hearts and minds. And so he tells them to pray in every place, lifting up holy hands without an undue importance to posture, but full importance on the heart and the mind as we approach God. And uh, he is seeking to correct them uh, with, that, with that particular verse. Now, when you try and get through all of the questions you could raise about this, I want to just suggest that we just focus on uh, the man in that particular situation. This is, in my view, was not the author's intention to sort out how the church should practice in, in its everyday aspect of, of meeting together as to the role of the men and the role of the women. And if you look in many of your translations, you'll see that as a header of these, uh, of these, uh, these verses. Some summary was interpretive, very much so, when it says this is all about role of the men and role of the women. I'm going to suggest to you that in terms of the men, first of all, it's quite clear that it was a corrective statement to the men because they were the ones that needed correction on this particular matter. Uh, they were full of wrath and dissension, and Paul was reminding them, trying to, trying to uh, move them to being men of holiness, godliness in heart and mind when they prayed uh, in, the, in the church. Is that to say women don't pray? Those are other questions. That's something else. Of course, he was, had already told us all to pray. And there's other verses that have to be dealt with to come up with conclusions on those matters. And we'll touch on that a little bit later. Now, the rest of the chapter is about women. And its, uh, it's importance, I think, flows from the culture that we just saw. There was a lot going on with the women there in terms of the culture of the, prince, uh, of the goddess Diana. And I will seek to... Uh, uh, try and highlight those quickly here. In verses 9 and 10, uh, it pleases God when women are prepared, adorned, different words used, uh, appropriately. And what are the primary principles here before you get to the specifics to resolve how that comes forward to us today? Paul says, in reverence and good works. He says, it's to be appropriate for those who present profess to worship God. And then he goes to the application of not with this, this, and this. Are you with me? The important things for us to pull out of the text and, and examine in the text is where is the, where is the general principle 
Where's the specific principle being applied there in a way of more teaching or correction? And where is the, uh, how do the specifics work out then? Uh, in, in terms of the, the purpose of Paul here, I think it's clearly that they are there to make preparation when they gather to the, the worship, for sure. But they are to adorn themselves, particularly not just because this is a dress-up occasion, but this is an occasion to worship God. And they're asking the women in this case as a correction to them because they were probably trying to dress like the Diana goddess or whatever they were doing that attracted Paul to this, this correction. And, and what is here is that uh, they were to approach God in reverence and good works appropriate for those who profess to worship God. Is, would he not say the same thing to men if they were power dressing or wearing cowboy hats? And I don't know what the examples are then. And I'm not, I'm not bold enough to, uh, to talk about the specifics of women today, right? Uh, I, I would have to run out pretty quickly if I tried. Paul expressed it because of the situation at the time, and, but he taught within the context of the principles. So if you're wearing a band of pearls today, uh, I'm going to leave that between you and the Lord. Um, I, I know, I know. Just, just your, your turn's coming, Joe. Uh, so we're as men. I don't think men are excluded by this just because the women are being addressed. He's addressing the women because that was an issue of that particular church. Now, how it correlates to other aspects of fallen maleness and fallen femaleness, and appropriate behaviors for man and woman and husband and wife is another subject. Right? It's not what we're trying to just understand from this text today. That's just way too much for my brief 25-minute uh, talk. I know, we're getting there. So we come to the last part of this uh, teaching about women, and this is some of the, how, has some of the difficult verses. I remember being with my, my dad in a Bible study in Shillington when I was 16 years old. I remember that because I went only because I could drive there. Uh, no, and also learned some things. There was one lady, a Mrs... Uh, this is, uh, help me, Dave, uh, um, uh, Dewey, uh, Fred Dewey's wife, actually, who raised the question to my dad when it came to this verse and says, what's this about childbearing? It's a complex little verse to try and understand. Uh, so I'm just going to work through these verses very quickly with you as, as I have worked through them, and I hope it's helpful. A woman should learn is the general principle. That comes from the first part of the chapter, remember, that's the main principle involved here, that he wants everyone to learn about God's truth. Now, this may seem a little trite in our age, but in that age, Jewish women, were, their ability to learn was limited, Gentile a bit more, but it was all taught by the temple. So, you know, and the Roman propaganda or whatever. So, a woman should learn. That's a very positive thing that's here. And it's, a, it's not that the women are not to learn, but there were some things that he was dealing with there in the particular culture. In, they are to learn in quietness and full submission. Now, again, before you correlate to other places, just hear this out. Uh, the word quietness and silence is used repeatedly in chapter 1 and chapter 2. And I won't take you through the Greek, but it's a, it's a word that was to describe God is pleased with, and we want to pray for the, the uh, kings in such that everyone... Uh, lives in peaceable and quiet lives. It's the same word there as the word here. He's looking for peace in the middle of, 
uh, of a, a, a trying situation. He's not talking about absolute silence. You have to keep your mouth closed so much. It's more, and I'm not getting into that right now, but he's mainly talking about what is... Uh, what he's asking for is similar in all of these different uses of that word. Down here in verse 12, she must be silent. Well, the interpreter, NIV interpreters use that word, but it is the same word about quietness that's being used. So, the same Greek word is used in chapter 2, verse 2, verses 11, and verse 12. Now, possible relevant cultural context, and this is just me saying these things, the cult of Artemis Diana false teaching with political power, which was advocating female dominance over the male, Paul wanted the women to learn the truth of God, the truth of salvation, and, uh, and they, they, they should be in that situation in that church. Then Paul continues, I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be silent. Now, I'm going to, first of all, take this, take this word and say quiet. And I think the word authority needs some, some work here, too. Uh, it is you, this particular Greek word is not the normal uh, use of the word authority and, and headship and, and submission that's used in Scripture. This is a unique word, and it makes it a little bit complex. And I really studied a lot about this word, both with Greek scholars and some travel I did in near Greece. I was talking to some people what that meant. And it's cert- the definition that I have taken from all of the possibilities is authorial power over. So it's if the, as, as Diana was doing, saying she was the source of revelation from God. And by the way, she was also teaching that Eve wasn't the one who was taught by God. Sorry, Adam wasn't the one that was taught by God. It was Eve. Eve was the one that is held up and all kinds of lies told about Eve in their culture. But that's also in this in this background. So I do not permit a woman uh, to teach or to have authority over man. So the next thing you have to resolve is this uh, a teaching or is it uh, absolutely or is it teaching in a particular way? And for my uh, looking at this verse in the context, I believe it's it's two mirrors on the same matter. What, what seems to be going on is that uh, a man was trying to teach God's principles. Maybe it was Timothy. Maybe it was Paul. Uh, and, but the people weren't being quiet to learn the truth of God. And in this case, the women were not. And she must be quiet. And she must also not to assert authority by her false teaching of it over the man teacher. Now, that's the way I look at that. And I, I stand to be corrected, but I think that's what's going on here by the nature of the word uh, authenticity. It's like authorship, claiming authorship. I'm not claiming authorship for what I'm saying here today, apart from the word of God. I'm, I'm uh, humbling myself before God's word to try and understand it. And that's the way I would look at this. And then Paul outlines the specific principles for Adam was formed first, then Eve. Now, when you look at that, you say, well, is that just chronology? He was the first one born. So the second one is second Second something. I think if you look through scripture on the use of this word. What word is being used is formed equals created and instructed. It was Adam who was instructed. Go back to the book of Genesis by God. We don't we're not really told how Eve was instructed, but probably through Adam. We don't know that, though. But what we do know is that Eve was deceived by the serpent. And it wasn't just her that sinned. 
by the way. Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. This is about the woman, women in this case that he's talking to. But we know the, the total facts are that they both sinned before God. So what he's saying is, Eve was not the one who did, was the one who did not heed what God had taught. That's the way I would, I would word that. The false uh, culture was that Eve was the illuminator of mankind because he was the first to receive true knowledge from the serpent whom preliminary Gnostics at this point saw as the savior and revealer of truth. We're almost out of time. One minute. Verse 15. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Now we know what caused this complexity is we know how men and women are saved. They're saved by faith in the grace, love, gospel of the one who saved them. What's being said here, I think, is a correction to someone teaching something opposite to this. Their Christian femaleness will be so characterized in in childbearing or in any other situation for that matter, if they continue in faith, love and holiness. This is what Paul is really after in the correction of these folks uh, to for them to continue in faith, love and holiness. And don't be threatened by the 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 uh, cult of Diana going off and talking about feminine procreation, that uh, they are able to bring forth offspring without male involvement on all of the things that was being said then. So we have women will be saved. Don't listen to them. But you continue in faith, holiness, in, in the context of being a, a female and a mother. So my summary of, of this is, it pleases God when women are learning God's truth in quietness and submission to God's teachers. They are constrained from teaching and having authentic or authorship over the men that are teaching at the time so as not to fall like Eve and follow the falsehoods and false teachings, but she will be saved by faith uh, in Christ, even though they are mothers in, in, con- in uh, confrontation of what the, what the false teaching apparently was that required this, this correction. So I, these slides are going to be there. I, I've, used, I've put up two slides of summary. How do we endeavor to please God at BFA? Here's what we've learned in 1 Timothy to date, and we had that in an earlier slide, and I'd like you to add your own personal learnings as we go through the book of Timothy and see what else we need to be thinking about when we talk about pleasing God. I've also just outlined a few of the ways that we try and please God at BFA and how we practice uh, maleness and femaleness in our, in our church at this present time of understanding and uh, these are just some of the main things that we, we have uh, as, as a group. And uh, you can add your own local church uh, things that should be added here and, and uh, your own personal convictions and understandings there as well. So our time is gone. I will suggest, uh, and I'll take the responsibility for speaking a little bit over time. I apologize for that. Please don't send me emails. Let's just close in prayer. Dear God, our Father, we just know that we're before you as the King of kings and Lord of lords. You are the immortal, you are the invisible, you are the eternal God. That you are sovereign and fully in control of all situations. You are the almighty God, able to 
to do your will in spite of anything that appears to be in the way even in our own lives that your will is capable of being done because you are almighty and we know that you are holy God that you cannot uh, stand and are unpleased with sin in our lives so we just confess to you our sins and shortcomings before you and we look to you first of all for salvation we also look for you to you for learning from your word and we pray that you will help us to be obedient to the Spirit's teaching in our lives and hearts, not worrying so much about those around us, but being careful to obey you in our individual lives so that together we can collectively be seen as being followers of our Lord Jesus Christ, seeking to serve him and honor him and bring him glory in everything that we think, everything that we say, and everything we do. And the same is true for our church, that those same things would be true and help us to serve you and bring glory to you in Jesus' name. Amen.